there's ways to sell and scope infrastructure work in a way that is not going to be like a, a cost that a founder or an executive is going to save outright is not like worth investing in. I think there's always a version of an infrastructural change or a process or cultural change that you can scale back to something that is worthwhile and relatively easy to implement that an executive that sees that long-term vision from you is willing to invest in. And I really would prefer someone take the smaller steps to get to the right place versus pitching, I'm just going to do infrastructure work for the next six months. That usually doesn't work in your favor. And also I think doesn't give you the space to know exactly what is the right part to start on and what is the right thing to sort of then iterate from. Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Catherine Gonzalez, who was the first designer at DoorDash, and she went on to become the head of design infrastructure. So in this conversation, she gives us a behind the scenes of what it takes to lead design at a high growth startup, how to build a new design language from scratch, and how you can become a bridge between design and engineering. So let's start off this conversation by zooming in on those first three months to get a sense of what it was like when she first joined DoorDash. I came from a much smaller startup, uh, a five-person company out of Boston called Fetch Notes that had ultimately failed and shut down. And so coming to a company like DoorDash, which at the time they had just raised their Series B and they were relatively large compared to what my experience had been at the time. And there were eight other engineers and the company overall was um, between 35 and 40 people. I was just super excited and, and jazzed to work with a group of folks that were interested and excited about building a consumer product and was mostly excited to learn from them because I was pretty early in my career at that point. I think those early days were um, interesting for me you know, kind of coming into it thinking this was a big startup or a big company that was very successful um, and sort of seeing that even at that stage, there's still a lot that we were figuring out. You know, we didn't have a, a fully realized design team. I was the first full-time product design hire, first full-time front-end engineering hire, but we had a design intern and our co-founder did some design, but all of it was very kind of ad hoc and unstructured. And there was still a lot that we were figuring out about what it is that we needed to build as a company. And so, I think, you know, being able to jump into the chaos, just work on lots of different things, like working on the consumer product. I think my first project there was figuring out how do we make tracking an order and the status of it as easy and trustworthy as possible, while also finding problems in very different spaces, like working on how our internal team build menus for restaurants and building a very complex and crazy internal tool. Being flexible and having lots of different spaces I was playing in to you know, both learn about the product that we were building for the outside world, but also helping our teams be more efficient. I think that was you know, a learning that I've carried through in my career at DoorDash in the sense that you know, I built a lot of things 
for the internal teams to be more efficient in building our product, but then also had a lot of influence in terms of what it is we actually like ship to everyone that orders the burger on DoorDash. You said a pretty interesting phrase there, which is finding problems. And I think that's pretty true of first design hires where it's not like you're being handed these polished PRDs where it's like, solve this problem. Okay, then solve this problem, then solve this problem. You kind of have to be the person that does seek out what problems make sense to solve and how to allocate your time. So can you drill into that a little bit more? Like, what did it look like to be someone who found problems as a designer? I think one of the things that is very true and, and is a core value that we like took forward at DoorDash was the idea that you have to see and your role and what you're doing as someone that is owning the product that is owning the outcomes of what we're all, you know, building here as a business. One of the traits that all the early engineers and designers had at DoorDash was um, having a strong sort of product sense and not just like thinking about being the uh, builders of what the solution was to those product problems, um, but being out in the field, actually trying to understand what those challenges are. So for instance, at DoorDash, like every employee does deliveries. They have to actually like go out in the world and see what the challenges are for Adatro and sort of same thing for other spaces. So for like our merchant products, you know, one of the things that uh, I learned helping start up that side of the business was I had to go into the restaurants and figure out what is the craziness of the workflow that they're dealing with to be able to actually take in lots of orders, fulfill those orders, work with the in-restaurant customers, and then also manage their staff as they're you know coordinating all of this. Getting a sense of that and being close to the people that have the problems, having an instinct to then take that insight into the product and then build it because you're the designer and the engineer too. I think that's something that is a superpower for people that are in those early stages. And you're definitely a unicorn. I've never met someone who was hired as both the first product designer and the first front-end engineer. Can you talk a little bit more about how that breakdown worked in practice in the early days? Like how much time were you spending in a design tool versus actually shipping code? I sort of treated those two uh, sides of you know my skill set as two different jobs at DoorDash. During the day, I would focus primarily on product design work where you know, product design at the time, we were building mock-ups in Sketch and like writing docs to sort of clarify our ideas. But we also were working either super closely with the engineers on like, you know, the work that they were building to get to that level of quality and, and fidelity of the design. And then on the opposite side, there is a lot of front-end engineering work that was more disconnected from the actual product and the design work that I did during the day. A lot of infrastructure work, for instance, like building out the foundation that all of you know, the other engineers that were more full stack, not as front end savvy, not as design oriented, you know, could build on top of to get to that level of quality that you know, we wanted to get DoorDash to eventually. That was something that was exciting for me. I also want to recognize that it's definitely one of those things that is unsustainable. Part of the whole premise for me, you know, being a full-time design technologist uh, after a couple of years at DoorDash was the fact that I couldn't play both of those roles and still live a balanced life. 
And so I needed a role that actually brought those two things together in a way that was more structured and official. That's how I managed it. But it's something that was definitely a unique and um, you know, high growth sort of experience for me. I want to go super deep on this infrastructure and design language piece of the puzzle, because I think you have a really unique perspective as someone who laid the foundation for you know, now a billion dollar company and their village language, and you can wear both the design and the technical hats. So maybe as kind of a context, so we really understand what it was like. Can you maybe describe the state of affairs when you first joined and started actually shipping code? Because I think a lot of people hear this like, well, there was kind of a design co-founder and there's a design intern. There's eight engineers and 40 people and no full-time designer. And that to me is like, oh gosh, like what was the state of design and the front end? Can you talk to us a little bit about what you inherited and then at what point did you actually decide, you know what, I'm going to start investing in things at the infrastructure level? One of the things that was interesting coming into it is that starting first from the design side, I think we were still very early days in sort of knowing what the best experience was for the consumer side. And, you know, we hadn't even started building robust tools for some of our merchants. And we had a very bare bones product for Dashers, which was actually the first product that like the company had built. Surprisingly, we didn't start with a consumer first product. We started with our Dasher product to build a logistics network to then actually fulfill deliveries, which we were just getting over the phone in the early days the founders were. Seeing that the consumer side and the merchant side and the Dasher side were still relatively early in their sort of design and visual language. Our brand hadn't really been matured and built. We had the, an early stage idea of you know what DoorDash was supposed to be for people, but we didn't have really strong or coherent narrative yet of what we were aiming for in the far future. There was still a lot that we were figuring out, and and it took a lot of the time between you know when I joined in 2015 to when I focused on building a real and full design system in 2017 for us to have more of those questions answered. And on the technical side, I think one of the things that was very true is because there wasn't a strong um, front-end engineering lead on the web, there was a lot of different tools that we used to build our product. For all the people that were there in that era of web development, we were using things like Backbone and Bootstrap and Angular and all sorts of mixes of other tools in a way that wasn't tied together and it wasn't super coherent and productive for the kinds of engineers that we would need to start hiring. Because at the time, we only had you know full stack engineers that were more backend oriented, more product oriented. They didn't necessarily have the sort of uh, technical background or uh, eye to get the level of quality on the front end side um, that we really wanted as a company, especially as we were building our consumer product. Did you have to justify that value? Like, was it obvious that that was something that you should work on? And how did you balance new feature work versus these investments into like the underlying visual language and front end infrastructure? I think one of the things that was interesting is because of my flip job title, where 
my official role and what I was hired for at DoorDash was actually just primarily product design, but I ended up um, taking on this additional uh, role outside of it in a more unofficial capacity. I had more freedom and leeway to focus on the infrastructural side in that sort of extra time that I gave myself, you know, doing the work at DoorDash. And my day job was still focused on product design and feature-related kind of work. That was how I found the space to do it. I think one of the things that I would say for someone that's, you know, not willing to blow up their work-life balance by doing something as crazy as that, is that there is ways to sell and scope infrastructure work in a way that is not going to be like a, a cost that a founder or an executive is going to, you know, save outright is not like worth investing in. I think there's always a version of an infrastructural change or a process or cultural change that you can scale back to something that is worthwhile and, you know, relatively easy to imp implement that I think an executive that sees that long-term vision from you is willing to invest in. And I, and I really, you know, would prefer someone think in more of those terms to be able to take the smaller steps to get to the right place versus pitching. I'm just going to do infrastructure work for the next six months. That usually doesn't work in your favor. And also I think doesn't give you the space to know exactly what is the right part to start on and what is the right thing to sort of then iterate from. I like this strand. So let's drill into this because I think you have a really interesting experience. You can see things from all the different angles, but I also think your situation is pretty unique. Like probably not a lot of people that are listening to this are owning all of the design and all of the front end for an early stage startup. And so maybe we can even abstract some of your lessons and speak to people who are working on smaller design teams and they're considering some of these things and they just don't really have a lot of the answers. And so I have a few topics that I'd love to get your take on. For a younger company, whether or not they're you know a startup, but like a smaller team, how do you think about how far design should push the level of craft and attention to detail? Because there's this spectrum of like linear and all the things that we celebrate on design Twitter on one end, and on the other, it's just solve problems. This is Vicodin, not vitamins. How are you thinking about that for DoorDash? And then maybe any higher level lessons that you think you could share for other people in a similar scenario? I, I think one thing to say in terms of, you know, what, where is the responsibility really lie? I think for the companies that we admire, for instance, like Linear, as, as you mentioned, I think it is a cultural underpinning of who they are as a company and as a business that makes them able to invest in design and craft and quality at the level that they do. There are just some companies and some businesses and business models where that doesn't really make sense. And, and I think like for a designer or an engineer that is hungry for that sort of level of craft to be what they work towards and aspire to and they see around them every day, I, I think that is an important thing to understand is not every company is going to be able to give you that. When I think about that responsibility at DoorDash, one of the things that was important is our business, you know, primarily is focused on, do we give people the selection of restaurants and nowadays groceries and retail and all those things that they want 
Like that is one of the most important things that, you know, matters. Can we do it in a way that is reliable and high quality? Like, does the food actually get to me? And like, do I trust DoorDash when they say it's going to be here in five minutes? That's the second most important thing. And the third most important thing is, you know, is it something that provides enough value for me and is cost efficient for me? Those are all things that I think when I think about design quality or like the craft of what we're building, some of those things aren't necessarily going to be affected primarily by design. So for instance, there's a level of trust that you're building with the product that you're designing. And, and that really, that speaks to number two. But a lot of what reliability means in that case is like, can I accurately predict how long it takes to do a delivery and give the right sort of expectations for our customer? For DoorDash, being able to know what is the craft and quality of the product that we are able to push and being able to push those levers. So for instance, making sure that designers, they have the tools to build high quality UI, high quality like product for the expectation of trust that our, our users like expect. That's something that like I can provide. I can also provide the right infrastructure for engineers to be able to be able to build performant, high quality interfaces. You know, in terms of that responsibility, I think about those are the things that are in my control that I can actually help push forward. For everything else, I need to be able to, you know, trust the people around me to do the best work that they can to make that craft and quality happen. That speaks again to that idea of craft as a culture. You have to have craft in all its different senses present in your business and in your organization to get the level of quality in the product that ultimately you are looking for. Did that level of quality differ depending on the product that you were designing? Because I think DoorDash is a unique use case where you have this three-sided marketplace and maybe at some point you kind of standardize the foundations where everything was at a similar baseline. But did you ever get to a point where you're like, man, this is the consumer app. Like I have to sweat the details here. Whereas maybe it's a little bit different for the B2B platform or were there other differences in terms of like how you approached the design based off of who you were designing for? Totally. And, and I think that's part of, you know, the idea that you have to be close to the problems that are specific to who you're building for. And so for instance, on the merchant side, uh, a level of craft that, maybe isn't what you would consider the traditional uh, visual design craft that is more likely present in like the consumer side of our product or in consumer products in general. Being able to recognize what is the level of sort of density and sort of information that is necessary and needed and real time for merchants to be able to run a business and being successful in you know, as a product designer, being able to know what it is I need to uh, design to solve those particular problems. And then as a design system designer, actually provide the right sort of primitives that you don't need at all on the consumer side. So for instance, like on the merchant side, we invested a lot in how do we think about data visualization and graphs and thinking about what is the building blocks that are specific to this space that are um, different from the other design systems work that we're doing on the consumer or dasher side. And let's really invest a chunk of our time into making this important part of the merchant experience great. Some of the other things that 
you know, are more prevalent on the consumer side and like maybe the visual richness of like the consumer product, we don't have to spend that time on merchant because it doesn't matter for merchants in that same way. So I think that's like the level of consideration and thinking that's necessary as you're building a design system across like all these different spaces. What about parity between design and code in the early days? Because I get a lot of DMs from people that are basically expressing some concern that there's this mounting design debt in the early days of a company and we're just not on the same page with engineering. Part of me is kind of like, well, how much does it actually matter? And again, this is one of those things that since you can kind of see things from both sides of the table, how much were you even worrying about that in the early days? And maybe do you have a general way that you think about design debt in the early stages of a company? My pithy answer to this is embrace the chaos. I think, you know, one of uh, the things I think it was Lauren LaPrette that she had mentioned is that design systems is a practice of continually trying to reduce uh, entropy. And as you know, anyone that's ever studied physics knows entropy always just goes up and to the right. I really believe that is that and, and it ties to this idea that design systems ultimately is a practice where you're continually working to kind of take the reality of what exists out in the product and trying to understand what is you know changing what is being added as a pattern what is a relevant sort of a path for the design system to go down to make that product better and making the design system kind of loosely be able to take all those insights and then evolve itself as an independent sort of product those two sides should never you know the the goal shouldn't be that they're one to one and and the same thing for you know code and design system side of things because the code is truly just like a representation of what the actual product is and so being able to as a design systems practitioner give yourself the space to realize like okay it is a losing battle to try to make every single piece of this like completely one to one and like to have for instance the design system actually include everything that exists in the product that's just not realistic and also I think doesn't necessarily embody what the design system is trying to solve. There should be things that live outside of the design system. There should be things that the product, you know, being closer to our partners and to our users should have more insight on, oh yeah, this is like a new way to do this thing that is better for our merchants. Our job as a design system is to recognize that insight recognize like that improvement, take it back into the system and then give it to the rest of the organization so that we're a conduit for growth and learning from one small piece of the product to the organization as a whole. I, I think that's philosophically how I think about this um, tension between the difference between design and code. But, you know, there are things that are worth trying to keep those foundations as similar as possible, particularly like, you know, for the things that don't change as much, for the things that are the more underlying primitives that you end up using more high level parts of the design system. So things like our, you know, tokens and all that, that of course should be as one-to-one -one as possible. But there are layers of abstraction above that where you can be a little more loose with it. So that's kind of how I think about it. How early did you define things like tokens and those other primitives? Like, can we look at kind of the phases of your investment into the DoorDash design system? Like what were those initial investments that you made and how quickly did you make them? 
I characterize like us really starting a design system and more importantly, like the design systems practice being in 2017, getting to a place where some of the kind of resources that exist in a design system, like early styles, I, I wouldn't even characterize them as tokens because they weren't as robust as what tokens um, mean today. I think that happened earlier, probably in 2016. It was a, a functional change for us to just have something that engineers could use without copying and pasting. And mm -hmm. that was roughly what we used on the design side. To have that was, you know, it was a useful step um, that ultimately, like when we started building the design system in full and building it in a way that was more robust and reminiscent of tokens as we know them today, that was something that we, you know, throughout and then like start over again from scratch because you know it was not necessarily where we wanted to go but it was something that we you know had in those earlier days so something that i've heard you say that i appreciate is that companies especially startups shouldn't start a design system for the sake of starting a design system but you should do it only from a place of actually experiencing problems that you want to solve and so i think i have a pretty good sense of the landscape over the course of those first, you know, 12, 20 months, what were some of the problems that you were experiencing that led you to say, you know what, it's time to take that next step and actually formalize a system that we can build upon and scale into the future? I think for us, it was primarily the scale of the organization was our most pressing need. So by the time when we started uh, building the design system more formally, I think we were about 10 front end engineers, but maybe like 50 engineers overall. And a lot of those were full stack people that were, you know, building UIs. We were also starting to grow as a design team. So I think at that point, we were probably eight people in total. Having something more formalized, something that we could rely on as a, a resource was something that was readily valuable because there was just a lot of craft debt mismatches and our intentions on the design side and what we were actually putting out into the world that we wanted to help resolve. And it was definitely the right time given the growth of the team. I think the other thing that's, you know, worth sort of noting from that time is I didn't necessarily start full time exclusively on the design system when I started the design system in 2017. Half my time was actually doing a lot of more broad design engineering work and that included things like prototyping and helping make sure that we were landing important like features at the right level of quality that we wanted, as well as also like helping with some of the front end infrastructure work that I had kicked off a few years before. There was still, I think, like uh, a lot of other things that occupied my time. And I really wanted to focus on a core sort of MVP for the design system in, in those early days in 2017. It's interesting to hear your answer be scale because what you just described is a level of scale that the vast majority of people listening to this probably won't experience maybe ever. And yet how many of those teams are actively prioritizing this initial design system in those first couple years? I don't even know if I have a question there. It's just something that has stood out to me. It's like, well, that, that answer is unique to your situation. Regardless of how you got there, let's kind of now take a step on the other side of this decision. So you've said, all right, I'm going to start taking steps to formalize a design system, really start in investing in this infrastructure level. You might even have to go rogue a little bit in order to make it happen. 
What were some of those initial steps that you took? For context, one of the things that was important was I was starting the DS effort in full in mid-2017. We had kickstarted a process for us to do a rebrand that was basically in like, you know, the we want the founders want to do this stage. And so we hadn't like, you know, engaged with a design partner yet and hadn't sort of gone through that process. But I knew that was on a radar. What I wanted to do was by the end of the year, we plan to actually get that rebrand out into the world. And I knew that there was an opportunity for the design system to be a, a tool for us to use in like, you know, executing that rebrand and to then like get that strong adoption that we wanted across all of our different product surfaces. I was trying to race towards that milestone. And what I really focused on was, okay, what is the core MVP that I need for both the design system helping us do the rebrand? And then what do I need for engineers to start trusting it once we've done that migration and put it in front of them in all the code that they're using, all this done by January. And so what I really thought about was, okay, can I build something that is a good representation of our tokens? Can I do something that is backwards compatible so we can get all of our existing surfaces looking visually like what we want as like the new brand using these tokens that we can then sort of leverage to migrate more things into the more official components of the design system. And then what are some of the core like components that we need? You know, the obvious stuff like buttons and modals and that sort of thing. And so really that was what my first six months, like really focusing full-time on the design system were like. The right gambit for us because we were able to successfully use the design system in executing that rebrand. By middle of uh, the following year, everything in on the website was using the design system. Then we were able to leverage that sort of success and organizational buy-in to start investing in the design system for our other products uh, or other platforms like iOS and Android. And so those were kind of the ways that I thought about what we needed to do in the early days. And I always tried to see it from more of the sort of uh, business and, and organizational lens so that like we could make the right decisions and the right timing to help take this from just a, you know, a, a project, which it could have been at that point to something that ended up being a practice that we continued all the way until, you know, the team's still doing it today. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about the three-sided marketplace as it related to the early design system? You mentioned the MVP. Is it accurate to say that it was only for the web product? And then how did you kind of extend to like account for these different surface areas? And maybe you can even give us a little bit of a, a higher level context too for how design systems at DoorDash works across the different platforms today? So in the early days, like the focus was web. So I had primarily a web background. I also like did some iOS, but it wasn't really like my focus. And I knew that was a place that I could provide value. And that's why, you know, a lot of my um, moonlighting work in the previous few years was focused in that space. I knew that for the level of engineers working on it and the complexity of the product, Web was the space where that scale problem was really acute. And that's where like I 
really focused my time. In terms of the different audiences that we were trying to solve for, I think one of the things that was definitely true is I knew that you know how we designed for merchants and how we designed for dashers, those things, they, they have to be tuned to those specific problem areas. But the thing that we could share was just you know, some of the underlying brand um, style foundations. And so when I thought about making sure the design system worked for the other sides, it was primarily from that lens and not yet trying to say, we're going to migrate all of Dasher to um, the design system early on because, you know, there's still a lot of things we haven't accounted for in that space or like the same for the merchant side. And so being able to kind of pick and choose your battles and figuring out what is your foothold into being relevant as a product, because the design system is a product in, in my mind, was one of the things that I think was important for us as we were figuring out what we you know, wanted to focus on and do. And then eventually, you know, I, I think like with success, you get more space and uh, opportunity and even potentially resources, like including hiring other people, being able to wait for that sort of success and that validation to be able to then like start diving into the more specific challenges in the other spaces. That was, you know, how we approached it. And then today we've kind of extended that in this idea of local systems. So for the longest time, one of the things that was true about the DoorDash design system is that there was one core design system and there was a lot of opportunity for individual areas to override and sort of provide like additional components that were constellations or orbiting stars of, you know, things that were specific to their area. But those things were under the radar for us and weren't necessarily things that were well considered in the context of the broader design system. In 2021 and 2022, one of the things that we started investing in was having a model of governance and model of organization for the design system where we actually have more specific design systems design partners that are focused on particular uh, product areas that can help solve particular design systems challenges in, for instance, like the merchant space or the consumer mm -hmm. space, be able to bring that to our core design systems like team that thinks about the global design system and be able to have all those things work in more close harmony. I think like that helped us be more flexible for the different spaces that we're playing in. It gave the partners that we had in those teams more opportunity to have a direct working partner that they could actually shape both the product and the design system with. If we didn't have like these individual partners on our team be like the sort of spokesperson for those spaces, I think it's very easy for us as a global team to spend our resources and spend our focus area on like the biggest and most urgent like partner, which oftentimes like for a consumer company is the consumer mobile side of things. And so I think it helps us counter that tendency and allow us to see the blind spots in particular areas like merchant and internal tools that we probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. I like this breakdown between the global system and the local system. And I actually haven't heard of a team that has dedicated people that own local systems, which is fascinating. I want to get into the details of what lives where 
a little bit. And I think there are some things that are mostly obvious. Like I could see how, you know, of course the primitives live in the global system and things like data visualizations are going to obviously live in the merchant local system. I want to kind of add some clarity to this middle ground. How far does the global system actually go? Like, how do you think about where that line between global and local exists as it relates to just like what components live in your system? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And this is part of the art, less so the science of the sort of setup that we had at DoorDash with local and global systems is that, you know, there's a tendency, especially for design systems, people that, you know, this is like a lot of their job is trying to focus first on patternizing and generalizing every like potential component that comes along versus like being willing to allow something to be more custom or be more specific um, to a particular space for longer than maybe they are comfortable with. I think one of the things that, you know, our local systems partners helped kind of guide the conversation around is we recognize that there is this particular idea or pattern or sort of change of the design system that's happening in this merchant space. Let's bring this back to the you know, global design system um, group and be able to say, hey, like, are there other spaces where similar ideas and similar challenges are happening? Can we connect the dots there? And it's not necessarily us saying, oh, there's, it's happening in two places. Let's standardize it. It's let's get these two different teams that don't even maybe know that they exist, like on the merchant and Dasher side to say, oh, you guys are working on like, you know, how does fi how do finances get like displayed and for dashers and for merchants? Maybe there's something here that you guys should speak to and, and talk to get together. If there's a fruitful conversation there, maybe there's an opportunity for us to then like have that concept or change be then brought into the more global design system. But I think it's very much a sort of like artful organizational sort of skill to have that be the primary way that you resolve that sort of like question of where do things in the design system live um, versus like, you know, a, a fixed process that says like, okay, like once there's two things, let's get in the design system. Totally makes sense. I want to zoom back into that initial process of working on the visual language, because I think that when it comes to startups, there's a fine line between building a system that produces efficiencies in how you work and over-architecting and investing too heavily in system over actually solving product problems. How do you think about where that line exists when you were first building the system for DoorDash? I think how I thought about it was, let me see what people are actually building and building with right now. Like what is 90% of our UI? Like, Unfortunately, at the time, it was mostly modals. And so I was like, okay, we need to like, you know, have one, you know, a good modal because we're using a lot of it right now, but two, maybe like a way to kind of pull us from that sort of mindset. And so, you know, for me, like being able to say like, is there a real usage of this thing out in the world today that is maybe not ideal? That is the thing that I really focus on um, because ultimately like it went back to the big goal of, okay, we have this scale issue, we have this quality issue that comes from the scale. How do we make sure that we're making every component that we decide to work on 
or every like design system token or change ladder up to that. That is how I tried to connect it back. So being able to just be uh, less predictive and more sort of research oriented was, you know, the mindset that I took into making that project happen. Are there other strategies that you think startups can take to ensure that there's enough flexibility baked into their system? Design and developer uh, experience is like one of the things that, for instance, when we were hiring for design system designers or design engineers, that was a particular like module that we thought about. And part of that designer or developer experience is thinking about what is the level of flexibility that is important and reasonable to allow for. Because I think today for, you know, a lot of internal design systems, it can be a little more oriented around command and control and like restricting versus like enabling. And so how I would recommend like startups to think about this is that the design system should be the size and shape that matters most for your organization at the time that you're you know actually building it and you should know that it is not the only material that people are going to be building with it has to be the starting point or something that people will use some part of and then provide everything else themselves and so you know being able to say like we provide a theming layer in the design system but you know, for particular cases, you can actually, you know, go about and, you know, override within a certain frame of like your application. And that should be okay. The act of a design system is, you know, allowing that to happen, but then having the conversation with like that group to say, hey, like, what was the thinking and idea behind this? And like, then trying to figure out whether that's something that means you can learn as a design system to adapt for those use cases. Or, you know, be willing to say, hey, like, this is something that should be specific for this problem. We've covered a lot of ground. I want to give you a chance to highlight any other questions that I should be asking or maybe even any other pieces of advice for early designers at a startup who are listening to this and they want to take that next step and, and build some of these efficiencies and start refining the visual language that they're working on. Anything else come to mind for a challenge or an actual next step that they can take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the advice that I would give is that design systems work and other infrastructural work is, you know, it's it's usually not going to be the most exciting or most enticing work for an executive or a co-founder to buy into. You know, there are bigger challenges in like the product space usually for these early stage companies. But I think one of the things that is important as someone that is excited about taking on that kind of work at an earlier stage startup to, you know, be able to know is, you know, there is a level of persistence. There's a level of, you know, knowing your audience and your problem space that if you apply those things in the right way and are able to have a compelling story for you know, this is the actual problem that like helps benefit the business or helps benefit the product that you can then leverage to find some space to work on these challenges that excite you. I think more of the sort of winning formula than being able to come into it with the sort of standard idea of why we need a, a design system because of the chaos of the product itself. Because I, I think like the, there is a... a, a skill and art to reframing like DS and infrastructure work that is just so important for, you know, someone that is looking to do that at their startup. 
And if you're listening to this and you are looking to do this at your startup, the nice thing is that Catherine is now in her post DoorDash era and is on the open market and is going to be able to help out a lot of these companies that are working on this type of stuff. So maybe Catherine, can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into what's next for you and we can end there? One of the things that I wanted to do after being at one company for eight years, especially one that was as you know high energy and, and fast as a company like DoorDash, was that I wanted to take some time to work with different companies and have a breadth of experience. And so one of the things that I'm excited to you know be doing now is advising companies in a fractional leadership sort of setup, where if there um, are needs from a product strategy, particularly for uh, designer or developer tools or uh, logistics and consumer products, which both sides are kind of in my wheelhouse, as well as you know folks that maybe need more specific advice or help with how do you like start a design technology team or design systems team? Those are the kind of areas that for founders and executives that I provide. And then for folks that are more practitioners that I think are you know excited about learning how to be successful and spinning up their own design system, I think one of the things that I'm also starting to do is uh, more coaching and mentorship. There's a lot of opportunity for me to meet with you and help, you know, debug and problem solve um, sort of the challenges in front of you in both like, you know, making a system, you know, uh, happen and get off the ground and be successful, but then also making sure that you as a design systems practitioner have the skills and coaching to up-level your career and where you want to go. Those are kind of the two sides of things, fractional leadership for companies and, you know, primarily early stage startups, and then uh, mentorship and coaching for practitioners in the design systems space. Amazing. Well, teams would be lucky to work with you. And honestly, just thanks for taking the time to share from your journey and everything that you've learned along the way. This has been amazing. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to just have like little gold nuggets to take away from this. So thanks, Catherine. Of course. Thank you for having me.